With a little doctoring of our vision, we can strengthen our heart. This is Rabbi Yitzchak Price with another episode of Tachlis Talks, growth-oriented, partial-related Torah podcast. We're up to the Torah portion of Yisro, the Sinai experience, Kabbalah Satorah, God presenting the Torah to Israel, and an often quoted comment, Rashi reflecting from the Medrash, that the encampment of Israel at the mountain, by Yichan Shami Yisrael, that Israel was encamped with a verb there being in the singular, reflecting the fact that there was a sense of unity, that we were of one mind, one focus, like a singular person. That was the unity experienced by Klal Yisrael and the Medrash at the end of Derek uh, Arzuta. The uh, text describes that since we were avoiding, we were rejecting any infighting, and we were instead we were loving the idea of peace, unity, harmony, we created a one singular encampment, God says, now is the time for me to give them the Torah. God is not giving the Torah to disparate individuals, or disparate subgroups, or disparate tribes, but rather to a unified Israel. The concept of unity as the tool that helps provide us the Torah is something elaborated upon in the work Sichos Musar of Chaim Shmulevitz, a long essay. A few of the points that I want to share from his essay are that he draws our attention to the fact that as much as the Sinai experience was the foundational element of Kabbalah's Torah, of our receiving the Torah, it wasn't the close of that experience. We often make reference to the fact that Purim really completed the story. There was some degree to which the presentation of the Torah at Sinai was not 100% pure and perfect. There was an element of, as some commentaries describe it, our being overwhelmed by God's presence, that we didn't have free choice and we would just had no, no possibility of doing anything other than accepting the Torah, given how vivid it was that God was there for us in the desert, providing us the manna, protecting us with the clouds of glory, this incredible thunder and light display on Mount Sinai. So when God says, would you like my Torah? Uh, yes. Not much choice. An element of coercion, so to speak, that's described with a metaphor of the mountain held over our heads. Again, not that there has to be a literal mountain over our heads, but the degree to which, what choice is there, that gets rectified with our acceptance of the Torah once again in the Purim story. And fascinatingly, the Purim story is again a story where there's a theme of unity. Uh, Esther says, go gather all of the Jews of Shushan, Knos Kali Yehudim, get them all on board to do this radical step of fasting through the Pesach Seder that year so that she can go make the pitch to the king with that spiritual boost. And the very fact that there was a threat against us, that is described as something that draws us to each other. And we stop looking at our socioeconomic divides or political divides or uh, either whether it's the different aspects of where I am in the society, in, in my career, so many different elements that normally separate us into little cliques, but that disappears when there is a collective threat of annihilation on the entire populace of Israel. And much of the Purim celebration relates to unity. 
sharing food with each other, making sure the poor are taken care of, many of the other elements, I would argue, even the drinking that has us kind of lose our inhibitions and lose our rank within society, and the masks that have us, again, no longer play the character that we play the rest of our year. And now I'm no longer who I normally am, and you're no longer who you normally are, and therefore whatever divides us is irrelevant. And many of the other deeper elements of Purim relate to the concept of unity as the key element that gave us the capacity to get the Torah way back at Sinai initially, and it gives us the capacity to finish this process of the Torah experience and finish on this high as happens in the Purim story. We know that the notion of Leva of us being of one heart, the unity that's described, is something that um, is manifest at different times in history. We have a Talmudic expression in Sanhedrin that describes Sheker HaChein Behevel Ayofi, that the, 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 the notion of what really matters in life, what is really valuable, and it compares and contrasts different generations. And it talks about the generation of Rabbi Yehuda ben Rabbi Eloi. Rabbi Yehuda ben, uh, the, uh, Rabbi Yehuda ben Rabbi Eloi is described as, again, aside being a great, great sage who has major impact on, on the Talmud, but it's described as his was the generation Six students would share one cloak and study Torah. And as described in the commentaries there, they were very poor. They were very dedicated. They wanted to study. And you have the combination of that devotion to study and devotion to each other. Six sharing one garment that each is seeing to it that I'm not the only one that's covered. I'm manipulating the garment to see that somebody else is covered as well. And that caring for the other, that focus on the need of the other is a critical tool that allows them to successfully study Torah and be seen as a generation of excellence in their study of Torah, in their own Kabbalah Torah, so to speak. This idea, by the way, of the six sharing that cloak, then with the capacity to function, brings to mind a, a story it became rather famous when um, Howard Schultz, the uh, chief global strategist and uh, actually CEO, I believe, of Starbucks, was giving an acceptance speech at Columbia Business School for a prize that he won in business ethics back in 2000. I do not remember what year that was, but I did a quick search. And it was in 2000. He was awarded this award, and he spoke, and he shared the following. Actually, I'm basically uh, reading. I'll, I'll be skipping part of it, but this is from the... Uh, records of the speech. He describes having been in Israel and have go- going to greet Rabbi Nussan Svi Finkel, the head of the Mir Yeshiva Seminary there. I had never heard of him and didn't know anything about him. We went into his study and waited several minutes for him. Finally, the doors opened. What we did not know was that Rabbi Finkel was severely afflicted with Parkinson's disease. He sat down at the head of the table and naturally our inclination was to look away. We didn't want to embarrass him. He asked, who can tell me what the lesson of the Holocaust is? We were all looking away and we heard this big bang on the table. Gentlemen, look at me and look at me now. His speech affliction was worse than his physical shaking. It was hard to listen to him and watch him. He said, I have only a few minutes for you because I know you're all busy American businessmen. You know, just a little dig there. Then he asked, 
who can tell me what the lesson of the Holocaust is? He called on one guy who didn't know what to do. It was like being called on in the fifth grade without the answer. And the guy says something benign like, we will never, ever forget. The rabbi dismisses him. I feel terrible for the guy until I realize the rabbi is getting ready to call on someone else. All of us were sort of under the table looking away. You know, please, not me. He did not call me. I was sweating. He called another guy who had such a fantastic answer. You will never, ever again be victim or bystander. The rabbi said, you guys just don't get it. Okay, gentlemen, let me tell you the essence of the human spirit. As you know, during the Holocaust, the people were transported in the worst possible inhumane way by rail car. They thought they were going to a work camp. We all know they were going to death camps. After hours and hours in this humane corral with no light, no bathroom, cold, they arrived at the camps. The doors swung wide open. They were blinded by the light. Men were separated from women, mothers from daughters, fathers from sons. They went off to the bunkers to sleep. As they went into the sleep area, only one person was giving them a blanket for every six. The person who received the blanket, when he went to bed, had to decide, am I going to push the blanket to five other people who did not get one? Am I going to pull to myself to stay warm? And, Rabbi Finkel says, it was during this defining moment that we learned the power of the human spirit because we pushed the blanket to five others. With that, he stood up and said, take your blanket, take it back to America, and push it to five other people. Now, there's a sequel to this story. Ray Schultz, apparently, uh, it was on another trip to Israel, came back to this Rabbi Finkel at the Mir Yeshiva. And I should comment, the Mir Yeshiva, basically the largest or second largest Torah institution in the world. And Rabbi Finkel was shouldering the fundraising responsibilities for this Torah empire. And the Yeshiva at this point was in significant debt. We're not talking here thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, there were millions of dollars in debt because he was a builder and initiator, building more campuses and new pro- projects and finding greater ways to expand Torah study and just taking upon himself more and more obligation to find ways to resolve this. And Rabbi, this Mr. Schultz comes back to write Nelson Svi Finkel and he takes his checkbook and he writes a check written out to the Mir Yeshiva with a dollar amount left blank. And he handed it to Rabbi Nelson Svi Finkel and said, do what you can do with this check. Ray Finkel turned to him and said, I have total leeway to do whatever I want to do with this money, whatever amount of money, whatever I want to do with it. Mr. Schultz said, absolutely, it is totally up to you. Ray Nelson Free Finkel took this check and wrote in the dollar amount $1,400, and he turned it over to this Howard Schultz. And he said, take this to a scribe down the block and buy yourself a pair of tefillin and use those tefillin. And Ray Finkel, rather than reducing some of the very heavy weight on his shoulder, rather than in any way trying to minimize that incredible yoke he already had, found the opportunity to be attentive to somebody else's spiritual needs. And he feeling bad for this Mr. Howard Schultz, that he was not yet at that stage, somebody who had filling or worth filling, I want to provide that to you. This idea. In the generation of Rabbi Huda Ben Eloi, that they 
use that blanket, sharing with others or the garment, whatever it was exactly that talus to see to it that they would warm each other so that they would collectively learn Torah. Rhinoceros Fifinkel teaching. Take your blanket, push it to the other, be in tune to the fact there's somebody outside of yourself who needs this as much as you do and perhaps more than you do. And then playing this role big time rather than doing anything you could do to offset his very significant financial stress, what could he do for this Mr. Schultz? The idea of the lave echada, my heart is tied to others and has the needs of others in mind. There's a fascinating lesson that Rabbi Chaim Shalemitz continues with in this work, in this essay on this parsha, with the kind of negative element of a wrong perspective, which it teaches us so much about perspective and using our eyesight, our vision, doctoring our vision to achieve this goal of having the right heart. And that is when it comes to speaking ill of another, Lashon Hara. We learn a powerful lesson from the spies further down during our stay in the desert where spies are sent to the land of Israel and they come back with a negative report, 10 out of the 12 with a very corrupt message and lead Israel into despair for which there ends up being a punishment of 40 year stay in the desert one year for each day of the spy mission. There was a 40-day spy mission, one year for each day, and asks Rabbi Shmulevitz, the sin wasn't 40 days. The sin took a matter of moments when they came back and shared this negative report. Maybe it was a 40-minute um, presentation they gave, so we should discuss uh, a period of 40 years for the 40 minutes, but the 40 days, that wasn't the sin. Why is the stay in the desert, the punishment, associated with the length of their spy mission. And he says that we learn from here that the sin of Lashon Hara, gossip, slander, abuse of our great gift of speech, is not just the speech, but the elements that developed, that led us to that negative speech. How they were looking at the land during those 40 days that bias they had against the land, their negative outlook, turned into the negative speech, which turns into this punishment of 40 years in the desert. But it's rooted in the 40 days. Their spy mission was a mission where they were looking with corrupted negative lenses. And he says, when we look at others, when we're capable of finding the negative somebody, we're capable of commenting about the negative somebody, we're capable of harping on something negative, we've been looking with negative lenses. If we could correct our vision, we would end up without that corrupted speech. If we could correct our vision, we would end up without plug pumping the negative into our heart. And if we could correct that vision and turn it into positive, can I look for the positive trait? Can I find the positive in the other? Can I be attentive, mindful of something positive? Then we'll have the positive heart and the outcome of that positive heart that readiness to share with the other, the readiness to study with the other, the readiness to grow with the other, and the capacity to be speaking positively about the other. The unity that can develop from that positive heart requires the positive vision to yield the positive heart to generate that unity. He ends off that there's a notion of kavod chavero, of having respect for one's peer, to honor one's peer, to be a to be able to have the value of one's peer. And he said, it's not enough 
for us to be dealing with this from the external, okay, I've got a certain behavior that reflects a certain respect, uh, certain niceties and etiquette, but rather, Ella, I need to learn to be valuing that person in my heart. And of course, to get to that value in the heart, I need to be looking at him with the eyes that will yield that result. We can do so, then we can develop that proper attitude on the other, and we can have all of the type, all the blessings that exude from a society where we have that type of positive attitude. Because generally, other people um, will reflect back our attitudes. It's hard to keep frowning at somebody who smiles. It's hard to keep um, maintaining like negative, anti, slanderous talk when we are connecting with somebody who is so upbeat and so positive. So if we become that upbeat, positive personality, we generally will tend to have others start reflecting that back to us as well. In so doing, develop into the society that can have that ish achad, belev achad, that type of unity that has God wanting to bestow Torah upon us, as he did in the generation of Rehuda ben Eloi, as he did in the generation of the Purim story, and as he did back at Sinai. And if that can happen, if we can be having that positive attitude that makes us proper conduits for Torah, we will certainly be all the more likely to be able to achieve our tachlis.